0: all right well merry christmas two cities church my name's kyle and it's my honor privilege joy to be the lead pastor here at two cities and one of the things we always say here that we are a new church that believes very old things we're a new church we're six and a half years old but we believe ancient things and one of the most ancient things that we believe is the christmas story it's what christians have always believed and if you've got to leave early i'm just going to give it to you what is the christmas story it's that we could not save ourselves So God came to save us. That we could not go to God, so God came to us. And in the most surprising and shocking way, he came to us through a virgin birth of a teenage girl in a small town named Nazareth. That's what we're gonna talk about. But that's not what we normally talk about as Americans at Christmas. I mean, Christmas is kind of a strange time for us, right? We decorate our houses in kind of ways that if you explained it to somebody, you're like, "Uh, yeah, I cut a tree down outside and I bring it inside. Why? (laughs) Why? I hang outdoor lights inside, why? I hang big socks over the fireplace, why? We do all these, I wear ugly Christmas sweaters, why? (laughs) Right? There's lots of things that we do at Christmas. We take additional time off. We travel, we spend time with friends and family. But maybe what we do at Christmas more than we do any other time of year is sing, right? I mean, even this doesn't happen as much anymore, but there used to be people that would just Christmas carol. I mean, how strange is that? They just knock on your door and you open up and they're like, can we sing you a song? This is strange. And there's a whole genre of music, right? It's Christmas music or it's holiday music, right? And there's, there's, there's Christmas music that's about the season and there's Christmas music that's about the Savior. Christmas music that, that is about the season is like rocking around the Christmas, I'm not gonna sing it for you, but you know what I'm saying, okay? Or, or or All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey, which could be about the Savior if you were singing it to Jesus. That'd be a little weird, Okay. <laughs> So there's, there's songs about the season, there's songs about the Savior, Oh Come, oh Come, Emmanuel, Oh Holy Night, What Child is This? We, we just love to sing at Christmas. And I think it's because that's exactly what the first Christians did at Christmas. If you'll turn to Luke 1, or if you don't have a copy of the Bible, you can Google it, or it'll be behind me. We're going to be in Luke 1, verses 46 to 56, looking at Mary's Magnificent, or Mary's Song at Christmas. In fact, what's interesting is the New Testament starts more like a musical than an average story. Don't you just love musicals? I think we all, it's okay, guys, you can even admit it, you love musicals too, okay? It's all right. We we love it. We go to Tanger, you go to Deepak, you go to Broadway, we just love musicals. Well, what's interesting is if you go to Genesis 1 and 2, it's written in Hebrew poetry that was meant to be sung, which makes some commentators wonder, did God bring the world into existence not just by speaking, but maybe by singing? And at the birth of Christ, there are five songs, five. There's a song by an old guy named Simeon. So you old guys, you need to sing, okay? Simeon did. There's there's a song by a middle-aged couple. They actually sing it separately. Zachariah sings a song and Elizabeth sings a song. There's a song by the angels. They sing, this is all at the birth of Christ. These are all separate, they're all songs. And there's a song by a teenage girl named Mary. Now we're gonna do something we've never done in the history of Two Cities Church. We're going to look at a teenager as a role model, just for a second, okay? (laughs) This is not something you normally do, right? Would you look back at your teenage years and go follow me? Probably not. How many of you would raise your hand and go, as a teenager, I was ready to raise God? No, me either, right? Well, what happens with Mary is Mary is the first Christian. Mary is the first person to hear the Christmas message. Mary is the first person to hear the message of Christmas and be changed by it which is why I'm entitling this message, Have Yourself a Merry Christmas. Oh, no, I'm kidding. That's way too cheesy. <laughs> but you'll remember it maybe now. Here's the, here's the whole point, guys. When you understand Christmas like Mary did, you should respond like Mary does. That's where we're going at. She's a great model of worship, of joy, of gratitude, and of humility. But I'm getting ahead of myself because before we can talk about Mary's song, we have to talk about Mary's story and Mary's situation, which was a hard one. Mary is, we think, 15, 16, 17 years old. She's from a really small town. It's called Nazareth. And, and you, you can know how small a town is by looking at the well that they had at that time. And the well was so small that we know that it couldn't hold more than 100 people in that town. So think about 100 people. I mean, that's probably less people than were in your high school. Unless you were homeschooled, then that would be a pretty big group. Okay, no. But what I'm saying is she grew up in a town that's very, very small. And what happens if you're in a small town and you get pregnant out of wedlock and it's also a very religious town? It's not gonna go well for you. And so Mary's a, a girl who's in an interesting situation. And it's interesting because we don't really talk a lot about Mary. When's the last time you heard a sermon on Mary that wasn't at Christmas, right? I mean, because what happens is the Catholics think too highly of her and the Protestants too think too lowly of her, right? And if you're here tonight and you're a Catholic, I'm a recovering Catholic. Welcome, you're safe here. Uh, and you can talk to me afterwards, you can call me Father Kyle if you want. Um, but, but here's the thing about um, the Catholics, they have too high of a view of Mary. Here's what I mean by that. They, they think that she can answer prayers. They think that she, uh, in some cases, is sinless. It's like, no, no, she, she actually, in this uh, song that we're going to read, she uh, says that God is my savior, so she needs a savior. They think that she can answer prayer, that she can dispense grace. So it's easy to pick on the Catholics. I'm actually going to pick on the Protestants, which if you didn't know, that's our tribe team tradition. We tend to have too low of a view of Mary. Do you know we're told? It's like we're told that Mary was uniquely favored by God and uniquely blessed among women. I mean, think about it. God had one choice at one lady who was going to be the mother of his son. That's a pretty important question. I mean, some of you don't feel comfortable letting anyone else drive your car. Okay? God's saying, who could I trust to raise my son? Now, I know why we forgot about Mary. We forgot about Mary because we forgot about mom. We live in a society that doesn't value motherhood and a society that doesn't value motherhood will soon forget about Mary. Do you know what the most popular image in all of Christianity is, the most most painted image? Well, it doesn't take a lot to think of. It's Jesus on the cross. Do you know what the second most popular image in all of Christian history is? Mary holding baby Jesus. We've remembered the first image, we've forgotten the second image. Mary is going to get news that is going to make her life better and harder. Have you ever had that happen to you? It's called getting married, if you don't know that, okay? <laughs> better was the honeymoon, harder would be the rest of your life, okay? Uh, no, it's called having a kid. I love all three of my kids, but it made my life better, it made my life harder. It's called having a meaningful career. All of these things in your life, they make your life better, and they make your life harder. That's actually what happens in Christianity. Your life is better. Okay, my past can be forgiven. My present can have purpose. My future can be secure. That sounds better, Okay. I need to die to myself. I need to repent. I need to be willing to serve and sacrifice. I need to put to death the worst parts of me. That's harder. Well, I want you to see today the way that Mary responds. You've already seen it in that video we showed you at the beginning. I know you thought we were showing you an episode of The Chosen. That was not what that was. Our team put that together. That was actually the song was sung in the original language. That's Aramaic. You heard the song. The language that Mary would have sang it in. And you've heard it read. Now we're going to look at it verse by verse. Look at me at verse 46. Here's what it says. Verse 46 says this. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. So if the purpose is to look at Mary and go, how she responded at Christmas is how we should respond. The first thing we see that Mary does is worship. Now she says, magnify the Lord. We often sometimes say glorify the Lord, but here's my, one of my pet peeves, and I've got a couple of them, but one of my pet peeves is when we use religious language that people nod and make listening noises to, but don't understand what it really means. I think a lot of people are trapped in churches with a bunch of religious language that they don't know how to live out. So if I I tell you, imagine saying to your son, you're going to college, glorify God. It's like, uh, okay, what does that mean? Does that mean I read my Bible a lot? Is that what that means? What does glorify God mean? Does that mean I'd be a good person? What does glorify God, do I pray a lot? Is that what I do? do? Does glorify God mean I talk about God a lot? What does glorify God mean? Glorify God means you make him look great with your life. That's what it means. Well, then you might go, well, how do I make God look great with my life? It's like, I don't know. That's your. You have to figure that out for yourself. It's based on your personality. It's based on your sins that you're struggling with. It's based on the suffering you've been through. It's based on the life stage that you're in. It's based on the relationships that you have. It's based on the position that you're, you, you're, you occupy. I mean, there's lots of different ways, but the adventure of your life is to actually wake up every day and go, how could I make the invisible God visible through how I live my life? You know, the first thing we're told about you and me and all of humanity is that we're made in God's image. Well, what's the point of an image? Well, I don't know, if, if there was an image hanging on the wall of Abraham Lincoln, what would be the point of that image? To remind you of Abraham Lincoln, obviously. That's the only reason that image is there. The image is only there to be a pointer to what it points to. Well, she says something strange. She says, magnify. It's like, well, how do you, make, how do you magnify God? I thought God is like as big and awesome as he could possibly be. You can't make God any bigger than he is. Like, how do you magnify the greatest being ever? Here's what Mary's saying. It's not that God is small, it's that he seems small to people. He looks small to people, right? I don't know, think about your work. I mean, if you're probably honest, God feels really small at your work. You're like, nobody talks about him. Like there's, the only. Th- when do we talk about God? Only when things go bad, obviously. There's no like, oh, it was an amazing day and the weather's awesome and the leaves are changing and in, and I got up and I'm healthy, thank you. No, it's like, it's only when tragedy or tsunami or tornado happens and then all of a sudden God's in the front page again the question, where was God? Oh, interesting. We only think about God when things go bad. God seems small in people's schools. I don't know where you're headed tonight or tomorrow. God might seem small in your whole Christmas celebration. In fact, I think what what Mary's saying is sometimes God looks smallest at Christmas. I think this is maybe why Christians, and they don't need, they shouldn't get upset about this. We shouldn't get upset about this. But every once in a while, you'll see Christians and they get upset when people say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. And it's like, well, we just need to grow up and realize that we live in a pluralistic society and no one's trying to hurt our feelings by saying happy holidays. But I think maybe the best part of us, if there is a good part of us in this, is we just feel like, come on, did we forget? Has just everybody forgotten that Christmas, the first word in that is Christ? And so she, so how do you magnify God? Because you don't magnify God like a, with a magnifying glass. You know, what does a magnifying glass do? It takes small things and makes them look big, you know? And kids use them to kill ants in the summer, right? That's what we do with glasses. But what does a telescope do? A telescope takes things that are really big and finally shows you how big they really are. That's what a telescope does. We're supposed to be a telescope. We're supposed to say, this is how big and great and awesome God is. So the first thing we should do at Christmas is we should worship. The second thing we should do at Christmas is just rejoice. Look at this. Verse 47, and my spirit. So first she says, my soul magnifies. Now she says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now She's not saying her spirit and her soul are different things. It's two different ways to talk about the deepest part of her. The first thing she says is, I worship God. The second thing she says is, I enjoy that God has been my Savior. So this is what I just try to hit on all the time, especially in cities like Winston-Salem, especially in... I I just think, especially at Christmas, it's a time where a lot of people can be religiously lost. Religiously lost means in church, but not in Christ. They don't really understand it. So I want to be so clear... There's two ways that people think about Christianity. One's wrong and one's right. One way people think about Christianity is I need to earn it. I need to earn my salvation. And that's maybe it's I got to go to services. I got to be a good person. I got to obey the 10 commandments. I got to read my Bible. It's about I have to earn my relationship with God. There's even secular versions of this. I need to reuse, reduce, recycle, ride my bike, shop at Whole Foods. If I do those things, I mean, right? People who do those things think they're a good person. That's why they do those things. It makes them a good person. Well, the Bible says, no, 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 we don't earn our salvation. We enjoy our salvation just by realizing we can't save ourselves, and God has done everything to save us. She says, God is my savior. Now, everybody has something that's their savior. For some people, it's themselves until they realize they can't save themselves. And for A lot of people think, oh, I know what my savior will be. It'll be that perfect spouse. And then they get married, and they realize, and all of us who are laughing are... Or married right it's like no your spouse can't save you Sometimes we think kids can save you well today the lie that most young people are told is your job will save you it will just get a really good job get a really good degree get a really good profession and it's, make a lot of money get a lot of time off that will save you and it's like no it won't I love my wife she's a great wife crummy God I've got three I mean I, I genuinely blown away by how great my kids are they're they're, they're well behaved they're joyful they're pleasant to be around Great kids, crummy God. I love what I do. I cannot believe I get to do this for a living. I mean, genuinely, I'm humbled every time I get to be up here. I'm like, I love what I do. Great career, great calling, crummy God. And what happens here is Mary realizes, okay, God has to be my savior. Look look what happens. She says this, for he has looked on my on the humble estate of his servant. Now, she uses really personal language about God. Today, we wanna get really impersonal about God. Like God is a force, God's far away, maybe God existed, but he created us and he's uninvolved. And here's an interesting thing to ask about your own beliefs and other people's beliefs if they believe something. This is a a very revealing question. You may not wanna ask yourself this question. Why do I believe this? Why would I want to believe this? What's the belief under this belief that would make me choose this belief? Let me give you an example. Why would people wanna think God's impersonal? Like why would somebody want that? Why would they wanna think God's distant? Why would they want to think God doesn't care and God's uninvolved? Because a God that is distant and impersonal and uninvolved is a God I don't have to be accountable to. I'm not saying that's the only reason people believe it. That's a big reason people believe it. She has a very personal view of God. She says this. This is one of the only references to herself in the whole song. She says, and this is the other thing we have to remember at Christmas, God sees my situation. That's what she says. God has looked on the humble estate of his servant Mary's like God you understand that I am 17 and I'm a virgin and I've got a really hard conversation with Joseph. You know, no this wasn't from us or anybody else it came from God. That's going to be a hard conversation. You've got a hard conversation with your parents. You've got a you've got a hard future. And let me just say this that I want you to hear me say this that at Christmas remember God sees your situation. Here's what happens at Christmas. Um, Christmas is an amplifier and a magnifier of how the rest of the year was usually for people. What I mean is people whose life went well this year, they normally especially feel that at Christmas. Oh, the grandkids are here and they're, everybody's healthy and we're newly married and we're in our new home and I got a great job and I, so we can buy some. It's like you, it just is amplified. But then people feel the exact opposite at Christmas. First Christmas without dad first Christmas without grandma, or here's a very common one for people, Christmas and I'm still single, unemployed, underemployed, infertile. And what we have to remember in that situation is God sees our situation and the Bible says not just our physical, emotional, financial, the relational, those are all important categories, but God sees our spiritual situation. See the great hope of Christianity is God saw us and cared enough to get involved. In fact, look, look how she talks about God. She uses three attributes I want to show you. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Here it is. For he, again, personal language, is who is mighty, has done great things for me, and holy is his name. She says two things about God, that he's holy and that he's mighty. Now, is that good news? Well, maybe not. If we're sinful and we're finite and we're broken and we're rebellious, why is it good news that God is holy and mighty? Holy just means holy literally means separate from you, above you, different than you, completely unique. Like we tend to think about God as like God is a I think the average American thinks God is a bigger, smarter version of me. I mean, he's bigger because he's like omnipresent, right? So he's big because he's everywhere. Fine, he's bigger than me. And he's smarter than me. Okay, maybe he's a lot smarter than me. It's like no no, God is so unbelievably above you, it's hard to explain it with words. But then the good news is he's done things for me. Now, why would he do that? Look at the next verse. It says this, for his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So three attributes at Christmas, mighty and holy, those are similar and connected. That's, that's the, what we might call the ultimate nature of God. And then there's that he's merciful. That's the intimate nature of God. Or as theologians like to say, the transcendence and the imminence of God, both Amen. together. And, and here's the whole idea that it would not be good news if God was holy and mighty, if he wasn't also merciful. Merciful is God moves toward the mess. Merciful is, um, mercy is God does not give us what we deserve. We deserve judgment, we deserve wrath, we deserve hell. And grace is God gives us what we don't deserve. Well, here's also forgiveness and here's also adoption and here's also heaven, it's like, wow. So this is the, the message at Christmas is God sees our situation and the one who is holy and mighty decides. No one makes him do it. No one can make God do anything. Somehow in God's heart, he decides to be merciful and to move toward us in spite of our sin. And And this is the good news for Christianity. God does not treat us as our sins deserve. But this isn't good news for everybody because it says merciful to those who fear him. And then look what it says, verses 51 to 53. He's shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estates. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Now, this is a 17-year-old girl singing the song. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor and theologian and, and and plotted a plan to take down Hitler, if you know the this, this story about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer hated what the Nazis were doing so much that he had a good job in Boston teaching, and he left his job in Boston, or maybe it was New York. He left his job in the Northeast to go back to Germany to fight against the Nazis. Why am I telling you this? Because this guy was, was radical. And he says of this song, he thinks it's the most radical Christian hymn ever written. The guy who the Nazis end up hanging, that's how Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life ended, he said, this is radical. I don't know if you can see how radical it is. It's radical because it shows you the upside down, inside out nature of what happens when Christ comes. It says, God is mighty, but it's not gonna go well for the mighty. It, it, it says, God is mighty and holy, and it's not going to go well for the proud or the rich. Now rich, now look, by global standards, we're all rich. It's By rich, it's talking about the ungodly rich who trust in their riches. And it's saying that, that it's Christmas, doesn't make sense to the mighty. It doesn't make sense to the ungodly rich, and it doesn't make sense to the prideful. And isn't that true? Who is the hardest person to reach? I mean, if we could just stereotype it, the arrogant rich business guy. Good luck. And I, I and I try to think about because I know a lot of these guys. And when I, I told you before I did ministry at Duke, it's like, and I love Duke, I really do. I love Duke University, I love the students there. They were just almost all, there were some people on scholarship, but almost all of them are just arrogant and rich. And they were groomed, I know we can't use that word anymore, but they, they were groomed from from you know elementary school to go to the best schools to get in this, to be self-sufficient, to be the best of the best of the best. And it was so hard to talk to them about Christ because they thought they didn't need him at all. But we're told the people that understand Christmas are the people that are humble and hungry. That's what Those are the two attributes that we're told is, is good. Humble, humble doesn't mean you think you're garbage, right? Self-pity is often just a form of pride. It's a very sophisticated form of pride. It's something like, oh, well, woe is me. I can't believe life's going bad for someone as great as me. <laughs> That's self-pity, and it's really a form of pride. True humility is, has two components to it. I understand God created me, and I understand Christ had to die for me. I understand that I didn't create myself. I don't sustain myself. I'm going to die. I didn't start my life. I have a creator, I'm, and I'm not it. And I'm a creature, and then I understand the cross. I understand that I'm so sinful that someone had to die for me, namely God himself. Amen. That, that humbles you. And what we see is oftentimes the, and this is maybe something to pray for, you know, it's it's that the ungodly rich, it's that the prideful, it's that the mighty would see themselves, their true spiritual condition as in need and humble and hungry. And it's normally only through some pain in our lives that we come to that realization. Well, she sings this song. She sings of all of this. And if you look very carefully, what she says is judgment and salvation happen at the same time. This is a deep theological thought here. Basically, when God comes, he doesn't just come to save and he doesn't just come to judge. He always, when he comes, he comes to save and to judge. I'll show you this. Um, When he comes to save Noah and his family, how does he save Noah and his family? By judging everybody else. The most famous story, I think, in the Old Testament is the story of Israel and their exodus. And we're like, oh, it's so awesome that Israel, Moses splits the Red Sea and they head through the Red Sea. And man, Israel's saved. Yeah, do you remember what happens right after that? And all of the Egyptians are judged. It's a key part of the story. How can they be safe after they get on the other, Red sea, on the other side of the Red Sea? How can how they be safe? How can they know they're not gonna get in trouble again? Because God judged somebody in their place. Oh, now you get to the New Testament Oh, Jesus was judged on the cross in our place. He was judged so that we could be saved. This is the message of Christmas, that when God comes, he comes to judge and to save. And he saves those who are humble and hungry and see that the only thing they bring to their salvation is their sin. And let me tell you, every year what we see in our church is the people who end up stepping up and getting baptized and coming to Christ, it's usually people who had some wake-up call in their life. That's what God does. God uses a megaphone, you know? Maybe that's what you need to pray for the people that you love this year. It was an illness and injury. It was a rebellious teenage son. It was a financial crisis. It was strife in their marriage. It was problems at work. And God used it to say, you're more humble. You need to be more humble, and you're a lot more hungry than you're willing to admit. But then look how she finishes the song. Verse 54, verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. There's just so much Bible in this. She's talking about Israel. She's talking all the way back to Genesis 12. I mean, that's the very beginning of the Bible, basically. She's talking about Abraham. How how can she be so confident in the midst of such life-changing news? Because she knows her Bible very, very well. I mean, it's unbelievable how well this 17-year-old peasant who is illiterate knows her Bible. I mean, everybody was illiterate back then. I mean, the idea that you'd have your own Bible in your own language that you could afford and are able to read is about 300 years old. <laughs> now today, the average American Christian, I think I read one place said that the average American Christian has seven Bibles in their home for every Christian in the home. And we don't know our Bibles as well as married us. We've got it on our phones and on our apps and we, we don't know it. Mary quotes at least or references at least 15 different passages of Scripture in these 10 verses. Mary quotes from at least five different books of the Bible. Here's what happens to Mary. Mary gets bumped, and what comes out of Mary is Scripture. What happens when you get bumped? What comes out of you? Anger? You know, quoting Oprah on self-help? Or whoever, whatever podcast you—this is what you know. This is what they say we should do. And then these things happen. This is what Dr. Phil says. It's like whatever you've been putting in you is going to come out of you when you're bumped. Amen. And people want—it's very, very shocking to people what comes out of them. They don't know. You don't know what's in you till you're bumped. Then it comes out of you, and it's very, for most people, it's a not a pleasant experience. You know, you'll often talk to people, you know, in in their early years of marriage, and they'll say something like, I was not angry until I got married. It's like, well, the theologically correct answer is actually, you were never, you created a life in which you were never able to be bumped, is what happened. And it's very easy. I mean, we're wealthy Americans. You can create enough space and have your own room. I mean, you're always in a climate controlled environment. You know how new that is? Some of you haven't sweat in years. That's another sermon. Um, no, but it's like, we, you, our, our lives are so, like we have so, you're always well fed. You know, it's like, we, you, we have so much peace. You, you can't understand it compared to how people live before us. So it's like, we're almost never bumped. That's why suffering is the main thing that bumps us in our lives. It's the only way to know ourselves. I mean, there's two ways to know yourself. One way to know, because we don't know ourselves, right? If you knew yourself, you wouldn't need psychology, anthropo, anthropology, uh, counseling, therapy. It's just, I mean, why do you go to th- counseling and therapy? It's like, I don't know myself. I don't know how this is affecting me. I don't know what's going on to me. It's like, of course. The only way to know yourself is in community if people will give you honest, immediate feedback. Amen. And most people are like, I don't want that. <laughs> so the only other way to get to know yourself is to go through suffering. It's the only other way. That's why they say suffering introduces a man to himself. And we don't like what we see. For Mary, she's full of scripture. So when she gets bumped, that's what comes out. And what's really interesting to me is that she has a very God-centered view of life. She mentions herself one time, basically to say, God, thanks for seeing me. And it makes me think that when most people, when hard things happen in in people's lives, they they tend to respond one of three ways. Uh, The first way is the victim mentality, okay? And if you're under 40, that's normally how you respond. I'm not saying there aren't real victims. Of course there are. The victim mentality, though, or what used to be called the martyr mentality is people act when something bad happens to them, like they're just a passive recipient of it, who can't control how they're responding. Well, this is how everybody responds who has a difficult marriage, isn't it? This is how everybody responds who has a bad boss, right? This is how everybody responds who gets sick. It's like, no, it's not how everybody responds. For sure, it's not how everybody responds. People go through lots of hard things and respond a lot of different ways. The victim mentality, so you may ask this, why would do people, why is it so popular to play the victim card today? Because I've had to think about this a lot. Why is it so popular? Because there's an unearned virtue connected to playing the victim card. Let me explain. Say you have a normal marriage, not even just, out of heart, just a normal marriage, but the wife, and it could be the husband, but let's just say the wife in this situation, the wife just, she tells all her friends just how hard their marriage is all the time. Oh, Bob. Bob doesn't take me out on dates and Bob doesn't share his emotions with me and Bob hangs out with his friends a lot and Bob works all the time and they, she tells her friends this. And what do her friends start to say to her? Sally, I don't know how you do it. You are a saint. I don't think I could put up with what you're putting up with. Immediately a person gets to have virtue by being by playing a victim. People can do it about their work. You can do it about any other That's if you're under 40. If you're over 40, you tend to play the victor card. And it's you act like you can do things even when you can't. You trust way too much in yourself and you're not willing to show any weaknesses. By the way, this is why like anybody who's over 50, if they're going to counseling, they'll never tell you. And anybody under 40, if they're going to counseling, they tell everybody. (laughs) Off to my therapy session again, right? It's a total different mindset. It's a total different mindset in how to think about the world. The, I saw the victor mentality recently by a guy. He's an ultra marathon runner and his legs are falling apart. They did an interview with him. His, his knees were just kind of like, he got some really bad news about how his knees are, he's not gonna be able to run like he was. He would run these ultra marathons. And the guy who was interviewing him was just trying to be like, hey man, this has gotta be hard. He was just being honest. Hey, this has gotta be hard. This is your whole life and you're not gonna be able to run anymore. How does that make you feel? And the guy immediately goes, I'll be fine. I knew this day would come. The reason this happened is because I ran so hard. I did what other people weren't willing to do. I'll learn how to swim and I'll compete at the highest levels of swimming now. And I just, I don't know this guy. I was watching this just online, but I'm like, I don't believe him. I don't think he believes himself. I don't think the person who was interviewing him believes him. It's like, what's the right answer? The the, the honest answer is, yeah, this is gonna be really, really hard. Maybe I ran too, too, too hard. Maybe I put too many eggs in one basket. Yeah, I'll learn how to swim, but it's just still really hard. Well, Mary doesn't do the victor mindset. She doesn't do the victim mindset. She she does the third way. She says, I need a bigger vision of God that changes how I view myself. That's what Mary does. She has a vision of God as mighty, holy, merciful, who sees her situation so then she can respond with faith, with gratitude, and with grace. Because look what has to happen. Look at look at here, verse 56, how it ends. <coughs> verse 56 says this. And Mary remained with her. Now, who's her? Elizabeth, her older cousin, who was six months months pregnant with John the Baptist. So Mary, I didn't tell you this. The story starts with Mary going to hang out with Elizabeth. Why? Because pregnant women love to hang out with each other. Okay? That's what they do. They talk about, you know, what it's like to be pregnant. They share their birth stories, right? For women, birth stories are the same as what war stories are to men. You know? It was painful. It lasted many hours. I mean, all that kind of stuff. Same same thing. And, and so they're, they're together. They're having this conversation. Look what happens here. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Why three months? Because because Elizabeth was six months pregnant. So she waited for John the Baptist to be born. Why did she do that? We don't know all the answers. One of the, one thing that we think is maybe Mary needed to see another person trust God. And if she could see Mary trust God, maybe that would encourage her in the future. Isn't that what we all need? If you're a parent, what you're trying to be to your kids is Elizabeth. I'm going to, ever so failingly, I'm going to try to trust God in front of you. I'm, I'm gonna repent, I'm gonna grow, I'm, not gonna be, I'm gonna be a perfect example of an imperfect person, Okay, but I'm gonna try to trust God so that hopefully in the years to come when things happen to you, you'll say something like, I remember when mom and dad trusted God on this area. Maybe I could do the same. So she, she waits, but then it says, and if you look at the very end, it just says, and then she had to go home. It's like, well, here's how it ends. Christmas has to end, <laughs> We have moments, we have mountaintops, we have milestones that happen in our life. For Mary, it's getting to talk to Elizabeth, it's getting this vision from God, it's singing this song, and then she has to go home, right? And this happens to all of us. Christmas has to end. It's going to end in two days. And it gets really awkward, right? You're taking the Christmas tree down, you're like, oh, it's, just, it's all over. You're taking the lights down. Everybody is at work is depressed from January 2nd to April 1st, <laughs> Right? It's like, what do we do now we celebrated all of our holidays it was it was halloween thanksgiving christmas new year's and now nothing you know and it's like well what does mary do mary goes home and she here's what she realized and i hope you will realize the same thing mary had a deep insight theology can change my biography that theology how i understand god can change biography how i understand myself and my future and so mary's got a big well a whole life ahead of her mary by the way is going to be the only human who gets to be both at the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus. And in between there is 33 years, 33 years of having to continually say to God, I know that you see my situation and I'm going to trust you. Now it's interesting because Mary is unique. She's unique, we talked about that. We probably don't realize just how how unique she is, but Mary gets to carry Jesus in the womb. The Bible says every Christian can carry Christ in the heart. And it is better to have Christ in the heart than to have him in the womb. One person for nine months, one time had Christ in the womb. But if Christ is in the womb, he leaves. If Christ is in the heart, he never leaves. And Christ can be in the heart of any person who would say, I'm humble and I'm hungry enough. And I'm here to admit I can't save myself. All I bring to my sin or to my salvation is my sin. See, Mary, I told you at the beginning, she was the first person changed by the Christmas message. But you can be the next one. Let's pray together. Lord, in a room like this, we just take a moment and we just, we need to respond. We're gonna sing in a minute. There's different ways to respond to the Christmas message. One of the biggest ways the people early on in the New Testament respond as singing it. So we're gonna sing, Jesus be the center. And for some of you, as, as we sing this, you're gonna, you're gonna sing and it's gonna be actual and you're going to feel it. And you're gonna say, Jesus is the center of my life. And this is really what I'm living for. For others of you, you're gonna need to sing this song, not because you feel it, but you're gonna need to sing this song until you feel it. And it needs to be a prayer for you. It needs to be a prayer of surrender. It needs to be a prayer that can say what Mary says. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Lord, would you give us the grace at Christmas to realize the great message of Christmas is we cannot save ourselves. And so you came to save us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.